If you are in Humboldt, you might recognize the name of our guest today. He is another district attorney candidate, previously worked for the DA's office, now works for the public defender's office. And yeah, it was a great conversation. I really enjoyed talking with him. It was a lot of fun. The election was on June 7th. Hopefully you got a chance to get out and vote. And let's dive right into the show. Please give it up for Adrian Kamada. Has it slowed down a little bit? Well, yeah, it slowed down a little bit. Um, I mean, there's it's always something, you know. Like, I got to spend a couple days over Memorial Day. We'll go headphones, see if you like it. Okay. I just think it helps lock in. How's the volume on that? Yeah, that sounds good. good. I can go higher, lower? No, that sounds good. Okay. Yeah. And we're up. And you were saying Memorial Day, it kind of slowed down a little bit for you? Yeah, you know, it's Memorial Day. Everyone takes off out of town up to the lake or... You know, doing Connecticut. Can you do me a favor? Just try to keep oh. that. You can move yeah, it yeah, back. Yeah. Okay. Just try to keep it like a fist away from your mouth. Okay, let me get that good. Come on. Yeah, you can pull it too if you want so you don't have to move around. Oh, wow. Perfect. Fancy, man. Yeah. Cool. Uh, yeah, and I got out. Got to see some of my uh, boys from high school for a couple days up at Tahoe. Turned out to be, you know, 50 degrees and windy. Oh. Uh, so, uh, we didn't get to spend much time on the lake or anything like that, but... It was uh, nice just to get away from the campaign for a minute, um, get some sleep. <laughs> Has it been pretty all-consuming? Um, well, as far as it can be, you know, I still am working. I took a couple weeks off during May. Um, but, yeah, I, I mean, public defenders have giant caseloads. And uh, there's, you know, a lot of demand for your time. You spend a lot of time in court. And then you got to go see clients in the jail. Um, you have clients out of custody. You got to make appointments with. And then there's reading, reading and writing all the research. Um, I like to get into. And most people use templates as criminal lawyers because it's just the volume so much. And I've always been someone that likes to uh, almost start from scratch on every motion that I write. You know, you know, anyone that's complicated like a Fourth Amendment search and teacher motion and anything like that. I like to dig in from the very start. So, How many clients are you typically working with at a time? Does it vary pretty substantially? Yeah. So it, it's kind of hard to tell because so you have clients that are, you know, ones on probation, right, that aren't like technically your client, but if they have any violation or anything, then they become your client again. Um, and I'd say, uh, it's hard to estimate. I'd say that we're probably somewhere in the realm of 60 to 75, um, of that combination of like active and no, passive. that like active, like pending trial. Oh, okay. So not and probation. Then, like, yeah. And then another, however many on probation. It's a lot of clients. Yeah, no, it's a lot. It, it definitely is. Um, and you want to. Uh, be the, your best for every single one of them, right? Even if they don't like you or whatever it is, uh, that's the job. And so um, I always want to make sure that I'm spending enough time. So you add that full-time job, which is, you know, sometimes more than a full-time job. Uh, you add a running a campaign and 
the demands for your time there in terms of writing uh, responses to questions, uh, helping manage the social media. Um, Which can be a lot. Yeah, that done itself. Uh, you know, I have uh, two great co campaign managers that um, have dove in on this with me. Um, just volunteering, like giving their time to, because they believe in, uh, you know, the message of that we need change in this community, and they're from two different worlds. Uh, in, in theory, you know, like we have one that was a police officer for twenty years, retired a year ago from Arcata Police Department. He was on the drug task force when I used to review their search warrants and advise them, and so he's a jack of all trades. Gets a lot of stuff done. Um, he's always coming up with stuff that I got to work on. And so he keeps me busy. And then the other one, um, <clears throat> Tabora, she's um, right now getting her PH or her, her MBA from Davis. Um, that's mostly online. And she's a world traveler artist, started Scrap in Arcata. Um, is in, you know got that activist vibe to her doing knows everybody you know uh, I've known her since I was probably in seventh grade oh wow yeah and her brother Cornell is a comedian he's actually performing he lives in LA but he's going to be performing at uh, Savage Henry at 14th and 15th this month headlining doing an hour Oh, shit. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. And so him and I have been buddies forever. He was one of the guys that I was in Tahoe with. So, yeah. Shout out to Tabora. I believe I was in contact with her yeah, through yeah. email. She seems awesome. Yeah. No, she's amazing. Like, uh, without those two, we would not be in the position that we are, which I think is a pretty strong position. You know, every endorsement that both Stacy and I have gone for, uh, we've won every single one. And so, um, you know, I think that is a testament to... Uh, people understanding that we need change in our community, but also a testament to how hard uh, those two are working. How are you feeling about your odds right now as the election draws closer? I feel strong. I, I really do. Um, just talking with people in the community, you know, I think uh, a big part of my supporters is uh, I think people that uh, obviously are paying attention to what's happening. People you know, have a lot of police, more law enforcement support than the act of ADA. And I'm a public defender. That's kind of <coughs> probably unheard of. Yeah. And, <clears throat> and then at the same time, I have, you know, uh, very conservative folks supporting me as well as very liberal folks. Um, the progressive Democrats are supporting me, for example, um, the Green Party has endorsed me, um, the Democratic Party, and then York Tribe, uh, and then uh, just pile on a bunch of unions. So I think uh, we've uh, done a good job with that, and yeah, I think uh, we're in a strong position. I think that when I talk to folks in the community, they're you know not the people being loud, or they're not the trolls on the on the Lost Coast or any of that stuff. They're uh, just people that. You know, we're like, oh, you know, when we go door to door, I see people at the farmer's market and introduce myself and they're like, oh, yeah, I already voted for you. It's been most common response. So um, just on that anecdotal level, 
it's you know it we feel like we're in a good spot reassuring yeah. talking to people absolutely uh you know but there is no real polling or anything like that so you're kind of uh left to make a guess and that's the only real metric you have you know a lot of people use the metric of signs and I, you know i think that's pretty silly um overall how many signs you have in places i guess it works sometimes but Talk to me about the billboards because I saw, I don't want to, it was kind of viral. I guess you could say that clip shout out to Ryan Hudson of the debate that you guys did, you, Stacy and Michael. And it seemed like that was a hot button issue. And I'm, I'm on the outside of that. I didn't really understand why. Yeah. I didn't understand why either. So there's, I mean, the billboards are legal billboards that are there and I'm going to follow the law and that's what it is. Um, these are the billboards in the wetlands specifically, right? That was the yeah. issue that was. And so, I mean, yeah, they keep going, oh, the wetlands, the wetlands. And, you know, trying to manufacture a controversy of them being in the wetlands. You know, they're, I grew up in Arcata. They're there before I was born. Yeah, they've been there, I think, my <laughs> like, whole lifetime. The ones coming in from yeah. 101. Yeah. And so, uh, and one, you have two posts that aren't causing any significant environmental degradation whatsoever. So, it's manufactured. Uh, you know, attack on me. And, you know, it's funny because going into the that particular debate, um, you know, I knew it was going to be an away game. Uh, <laughs> Why so? Well, one, the person that uh, uh, is like one of the managing people of that association, the Real Humboldt Realtor Association, um, he's one of the biggest uh, supporters of Miss Eads. Um, he's already donated through LLCs, something like three grand. So you know, fifteen hundred dollars is the limit. But if you have an LLC, you create a LLC. You can Little loophole. Yeah, yeah. So I knew that going in, um, and it was interesting. I was one of uh, so a lot of the district attorney investigators were there, um, and all of them support me. Um, so that's caused a lot of riff in the office, um, and so they were filling out questions. Uh, they they're handing out cards, right? um to, to ask questions and um all the people that i think they suspected were with me they handed a yellow card and then the other people got an orange card so when they went up and asked questions it was only the orange cards that were asked um so <clears throat> you know i knew you know is basically and then you get the first question to me and it's for the group and it's uh well you uh promised to never have your picture on a billboard in a wetland and i you know i so i was like well that's clearly a question only for me um had you made that promise previously not to do that no okay no i never said anything like that and so (laughs) i was like all right right." um i see how this is gonna go and you know uh my first reaction was just to stand up and go nope and then sit back down um and then, you know, the crowd, they, you know, her surrogates, she's got two very um, bellicose type surrogates that are loud. They're like yelling at me from the crowd. The whole. These are just spectators watching? They're Eads. Uh, Supporters. Yeah, more like campaigners, like part of the team. One's a political consultant. The other one uh, is uh, a current employee in the office that is bragged about uh, giving $3,000 one, again, through an LLC because he's, you know going to get the ADA position, um, just really kind of discussing stuff in my opinion. Some backdoor action going on. <clears throat> Absolutely. And so in any event, 
you know, they're like yelling at me like, yeah, my buddies put up some billboards and, uh, you know, they, so they went from it, the environmental thing. Cause like, it's not an environmental issue. You know, I was named environmental prosecutor for the state of California. You know, I'm not, I'm someone that that's why I went into law before I became a prosecutor and why I became a prosecutor I started as the environmental prosecutor. Um, and so the whole thing just was silly to me. And then they try to turn it into this transparency issue. Oh, he's being bought, uh, dark money, all this kind of stuff. I'm like, no, it's literally my buddies from high school. Like, well, it seemed like there was a little hesitation because it was almost a two-part answer, right? You got up, spoke, Stacy got up, spoke, and then you rebuttaled what she said. Yeah. And it seemed like initially when you got up, it almost, you almost got the sense that you didn't know where the billboards came from, that you weren't connected to it. And then your additional response was that, okay, it was a group of my friends, but obviously I don't have any sway over them. No. What... So yeah, the, um, well, if I sorry, if, if it came off like that, I've been very clear. That was, to be fair, that was the only clip that I saw. I could oh. not find the whole, the whole lecture for it. For oh, the okay. whole um, engagement, I've, the public forum. Yeah. I've been very clear that it, is my buddies. I, you knew that. Yeah. The whole oh, time. 100%, okay. Yeah. Um, I didn't, did you, you know, have anything to do with that or they approached you afterwards and said, Hey, we got this billboard for you. Well, no, they said, uh, I want to do something for your campaign. Um, and you know, uh, they mentioned billboards, they mentioned some other ideas and I was like, okay, well, if you guys are going to do that, I'm not, I can't coordinate with you. That's, um, what the law says. Like if you have an independent expenditure, um, committee. You can't be a part of that. I can't, I can like, legally I can give them pictures. I can, uh, talk to them. Um, but I can't control how they spend their money. So with my committee, uh, I control like what we use Facebook ads, uh, pay for loco ads. I make those decisions. I pay the check them. They decide what to do with it. So I'm just putting my trust in, in them, uh, essentially. Um, and I didn't talk to them about, any of it and so um honestly the first time i saw the billboard i was like well you know i had an idea that the that might be in the cards um for sure but when i saw it actually up it was different you know so were you pretty surprised to get that as a question in that forum i wasn't surprised you uh, knew it was coming i well it <clears throat> like i said i knew that the um you know there was some pretty obvious things that this was a debate set up for uh, Stacy, I mean, yeah, but that specifically, had there ever been any oh, talk of the wetland? No, um, there was a, you know, TV does a lot of my social media um, stuff. Like I talk, both of us kind of do the social media together, but she really is the lead on um, the social media. And uh, there was a guy on there that I responded to. Um, I was like, yeah, this, you know, he's like, uh, what's that was like two days before or something. Um, before that thing I was like what's the deal with your billboards um you know it's not on your finance form and I said well it's not on my finance form because I didn't pay for them or it's an independent expenditure committee and uh he's like oh well um and then like kind of just pivoted to attacking me on something else and turns out this person is uh Maggie Fleming's brother-in-law and he just kept kept like attacking and attacking and uh I think Tibby or I might have uh, banned him at some point because it was just like constant, constant, and that's you know what we've endured over the last month. Their uh, campaign, I think, from noticing the support that we have, have just pivoted to attacking me in any way they can, and also at the same time uh, copying 
my policy ideas. It's been very, very strange. Um, but, you know, my philosophy has been we stay above this. You know, it's hard sometimes um, when you're being attacked to not want to respond. But in my experience, you're not going to be able to reason with these people. Like, you can present facts. You can present the legal argument or the logical argument. And they're just going to pivot to something else. And so, and to untrue stuff. And we'll just keep doing it. And it's like, so just let them speak into the void. You know, they end up just looking crazy. Do you think that that is coming from the campaign arm of Stacey Eads' campaign? Because I didn't get that impression from her. She seems pretty level-headed. But in that clip that I saw, she was definitely, you two were definitely, it was, the spotlight was on you two going back and forth. Well, yeah. You know, I'd say before this, I worked with Stacey for six years in the office and then two years um, we've had cases against each other. And I've always liked Stacy. I have never had a problem with Stacy at all. Um, but if you <laughs> look at what's happened over the last couple of months, um, you know, if you look at, yeah, I encourage you to look at the debate from the uh, Women League of Voters. That was I on saw that one. Key. And, uh, you know, spends the entire time talking about me, essentially, you know, attacking me, and then uses her. Uh, closing statement to uh, I don't know if she knows that they're lies um, but uh, to make you know fear mongering at the highest level saying if you vote for Adrian Com- last sentence if you vote I, for Adrian Kamada yeah, do you mind if I, if yeah, I reiterate that go for it. This, is, this is a direct quote from that League of Women Voters Forum quote this is dangerous ladies and gentlemen if Mr. Kamada is your DA you will not be safe that was on May 18th. That's yeah. a pretty, that is a pretty bold statement to make. Yeah. And so, you know, from knowing her uh, in the office and knowing her for, you know, eight years, she's pretty mellow, introverted person. Um, she can get frustrated, but she's more, yeah, she's, I was like, this isn't Stacy. You know, this isn't the person that I know that I've seen. You know, I think that there's uh, been some coaching. I think that, that they've taken a, you know, a political strategy from Maggie or oh, from, I, you know, outside. I can't say for sure, but you know, I think that definitely that's part Some of influence it. that oh, for sure. hundred percent. But, um, so yeah. And then, you know, just like just stay above the text if that's all they got, you know? And it's funny. She's like, you know, Oh, he has a 33% conviction rate. And it's like, um, I don't know what's, and then I don't know because I'm not in the office, right? So I can't just look up my cases, but they went ahead and used the DA's office as, you know, a, it's an arm of the campaign to look it all up and then put it on a blogger's site. Um, it was very selective math to get to 33% um, completely. And then, you know, Maggie and Stacy are both reiterating this thing. And it's like, it's a joke because uh, I was the person in the office to move fastest to doing homicides. Why would you put some incompetent attorney to move to homicides faster than anybody else? And, you know, Stacey's been there for 20 years. She's never done a homicide trial. So it's like, what do you guys, like, they can't even keep their attacks straight or logical, you know? So, um, you know, that it's frustrating. But again, it's like, uh, you know, we got to stay above it and stay with our message, which is changes are needed. And I think everything that they've done has just shown that change really isn't needed. 
why the hit job, if that's what it is? You think they're digging in now because your campaign's kind of taken off mm -hmm. and they, th they see you as a threat? Absolutely. Um, they saw me as a threat from the beginning. I think Maggie saw me as a threat when I was in the office. There was a lot of people in the office um, from law enforcement to other attorneys to investigators in the office that uh, encouraged me to run for DA Wells in the office still, you know? And th at that point, you know, I only had five years experience or whatever. Um, and, but, you know, still was one of the senior attorneys in there doing homicides and doing them, you know, my, once I started doing trials my way and doing things my way, you know, I was successful. Um, anytime that I, you know, took advice, suggestions, um, from Maggie or others, I realized quickly that I would get into a situation in trial and I'd be completely wrong by listening to their advice. And so it was kind of scary, honestly. Um, and I, and I wasn't the only person that felt like that. I mean, in the time that Maggie was, uh, the district attorney in the last seven and a half years, they've lost 23 attorneys. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's that's kind of surprising to hear because it sounds like they both have a lot of experience between the two of them. Yeah, I mean, there's a difference between experience and wisdom, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's, uh, so, I mean, the fact that Stacey's been there 20 years and hasn't done a jury trial for a homicide. What is, and we keep coming back to this homicide thing. Is that like the cream of the crop? Yeah, the I top mean, line yeah, I mean, prosecutors that, go to that? Yeah. That's, you know, being the homicide prosecutor is being, having the most responsibility. She has done some homicide cases though, hasn't the Mary, Marcy Kitchen case? Yes. So she's never got to a trial position though. though. Okay. She's never actually gone through a trial. She's done the Marcy Kitchen case. Um, you know. Was she attached to the Father Bernard? Uh, Father Freed. Father Freed. Not uh, Father Bernard. Yeah. They tried to push that early on that she was part of that, but she like appeared on some cases. Andrew Isaac did the entire trial by himself. Um, and so I think that was, you know, to try to make it seem like she had more experience. And if you listen to, you know, the Kema uh, debate, you know, she tries to explain, she explains that or tries to explain why they were pushing that. And, you know, it didn't really make sense to me. Um, but I think she's kind of gotten away from trying to say that she was the prosecutor on that. She wasn't. I would imagine that working the sexual assault cases that she had, especially with some of them being, you know, child cases, that seems like that would be high up there as well, though. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, no, I, I mean... I don't know. Obviously, I can't speak directly because I have no experience with it, but that, yeah. those cases seem like they would be pretty hard to stomach. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, any case dealing with that, it, it, you have to... It takes time, you know, um, and I think that they... You know, a lot of DA's offices try to rotate that position a lot more. Because uh, it's so strenuous? Yeah. You know, um, there was a, you know, a DA investigator um, that was assisting with those cases, and he had the unfortunate job of having to be the computer guy. <laughs> so he was... Oh, search through the computers. Yeah, office uh, forensic guy that had to search through, you know, molesters and sexual assault of children, their computers and stuff. And I mean, that is a job that deserves hazard pay, you know? Um, yeah, that seems like a high burnout position. Yeah, and uh, they eliminated that position, actually. It's no longer there. Um, and it was useful for, like, for me as, like, a drug prosecutor, you know, at that time. Uh, and having someone that, 
you know, was two offices down that we could get a cell phone and get a search warrant for it, and then he could uh, process it. Um, now it's left to the agencies to do. So. Yeah, it'll be – do you feel like working homicide gives you kind of like a leg up for this position if you were to move into the DA slot? Sure. I mean, I think it's something that you need to know. Factor in. Yeah. yeah. Um, ultimately, I think that um, the way that you view the position um, and the way that you run the office and the culture that you install is the main factor. So, you know, you could have a quarterback that's, you know, managing the game two yards at a time, uh, gets, you know, a lot of losses, um, and get some wins here and there. Um, and that's kind of how I see the office operating in a lot of ways, as opposed to like having an actual game plan, a strategy, moving the ball, using all your weapons, you know? And so that's, that's how I see, um, myself coming in there is, you know, they're very much, oh, well, you're not an administrator. Well, Maggie wasn't an administrator before she started. Stacy's, you know, being groomed for the last six months to be administrator. Okay. Um, that the administrating part of it, yeah, I, there's 20 attorneys that I could name that can put together a schedule and manage attorneys around. That's uh, not something that I think that's that complicated. Um, and we'll have no problem doing. I, my plan is to have... Um, a pretty active uh, assistant district attorney that's going to be handling a lot of that stuff because um, I see the role of being a DA as being someone that is uh, building the office uh, and I'm really going to be doing it from I think the ground up to modernize it like from getting a own internet line in there so that the software that they use for uh, data and for case management, they can actually use. Um, it won't be all slow and, uh, you know, not user-friendly. Get rid of that. Have tablets down in court, like my tablet. Um, instead of making 7,500 files a year, I mean, there's literally three people that make files and two people that chase around files. And, you know, the those jobs... The turnover in the administrative part during their part, 33 people have left the office. It's a lot of people in seven years. And so they're kind of high-stress jobs that um, aren't paid well. Um, and, I, and I think that leadership means that you are out there advocating for those people so you can keep them so you don't have this turnover rate. I think that leadership means that um, not only are we going to eliminate those uh the need to have a bunch of people making files but turn those into substantive jobs you know actually give them substantive tasks including like uh, data collection um, so we can make policies that are data driven um, and then there's going to be uh, building an intern program with cal poly i'm going to bring in a f uh, apply for a fellowship Bring in a fellow that is going to be an expert in civil law because they don't have anybody in civil law. I did civil cases there. was the only person. And there's no person. There's no legal assistant. There's no person to talk to. <laughs> and civil law takes, uh, you know, it's a little bit different ballgame. But we need a civil law 
arm uh, in the DA's office. And so there's a lot to do. And I see it as um, I'm going to be making decisions on management stuff, but my assistant DA is going to be doing a lot of the nuts and bolts stuff while we do it. Do you think that turnover rate is a direct reflection of the current leadership or you think it's just yeah intertwined with the job yeah you know i think it's a combination of things yeah and you think you can you can change that with those steps yeah i think that provide more support yeah i mean look i mean you had people getting mad because their files weren't you know organized on the cart before they get down to court and you have your people are you know literal carts with four or five baskets full of files going down um you know it's just a huge waste when you can like i in public defender's office i have a i use my own i brought my about my own computer uh it's a tablet um but i can access all of my cases um i don't need to bring file we don't even make misdemeanor files in, in the public defender's office we just make felony files but i hardly ever use those anymore because it's all right there. It's all right there. And why would we do that? You know, it's 2022. Yeah, it seems like a waste, <laughs> right? It's inefficiency. Yeah. yeah. And then, so, I mean, that's just the beginning, right? That's the foundation that needs to be rebuilt and modernized using some technology. Um, but then from there, we need to organize the office in a way that, uh, you know, lowers the stress level on folks. I think that having a second person in the subpoena position, I think getting the issue subpoenas which has been a huge problem for the law enforcement. They've been telling me along this campaign trail over and over. Um, the subpoena issue, just that's all they want to talk about, you know, because they're being subpoenaed over and over and over for the same case, not going. They're being sitting around. Taxpayers are paying these people, these officers, to sit and wait for a case that, you know, if you had uh, a more organized system, you would be able to tell them, you know, this case isn't going to go today or, you know, be on call. Um, and so I think there's a couple of things there. One, you know, I uh, suggested since the beginning uh, that we need to adopt um, iSubpoena, which is, you know, basically just an app that sends the subpoena to the officers and they can click yes or no. And uh, that, again, will save a lot of time and money. It costs money up front, but overall it's an investment that's going to pay back. But I think having two people on subpoenas, um, a, and then getting the technology for iSubpoena as well. Um, and, you know, you take one of those people that's making files and move them over there, and then you lower the stress of the person that's in a really stressful position because the subpoena, because, you know, they are the front line of all these people calling in going, well, what's going on with this? What's going on with that? What's the status? Blah, blah, blah. Do I really need to be there, et cetera? Um, you know, so that's tough. So um, I think, you know, and then a big part of it is going and listening to, these people that are in those jobs and, hey, what's working for you? What's not? How can we fix it? And instead of just, you know, spitting demands, um, have a little bit more, I think, uh, investment into the mission. And not that those folks don't. Um, they have a lot of investment into the mission, but it's, um, I think, you know, some of that is taken away by the stress of the job. Would you say that's one of the primary focuses of your campaign is – essentially modernizing the office and, and providing that support for the employees. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, that's the very base, you know, um, that's kind of the foundation of where it has foundation. To and then we can build from there and building from there means that we need to start looking at how 
we use our positions and how we can be more effective with them. You know, one issue that I heard from uh, both uh, the Hoopa and the Yurok tribe is, you know, uh, dealing with the missing and murdered indigenous peoples. Um, they need help. And uh, one way that I think we can help, and one of the things that they're continuing talking about is, you know, there's this gap between the cultural um, sensitivity and approach that you need to take. And there's a lot of um, folks in that community that might have some information about some of these missing people, but they're not, you know, there's a level of distrust with law enforcement and stuff. But, you know, there are some people that I think once you build that trust uh, are going to be more willing to talk. And part of that is having a DA investigator, a seasoned person that has done missing cases, has done homicide cases, can go and start to build a, be a liaison to actually start building a relationship there um, and can give advice about what are the right questions to ask in a missing person's or a homicide case. Um, and then that, the longer they're there, kind of understand um, the cultural aspects of it as well and taking that approach. And so that's you know something I do it assign an investigator to be that liaison um, to help out because um, you know I went up there for the ceremony uh, last month and it was you know it's devastating There's, people are missing their family members and don't know what happened is that still a pretty prominent issue around here oh absolutely Yurok declared a state of emergency uh, this last November December um, and there's you know last month was uh, another missing woman, young woman, um, and, you know, they were able, Iraq was able to get some help from a advocacy group um, that provides some resources, and uh, the sheriff's department went up there and um, provide resources as well and help search, um, but they need, uh, you know, stuff like drones. Uh, I mean, we're talking about the Klamath Basin, uh, you know, it's pretty rugged territory on either side. Really what they need is like a heat-seeking helicopter. Um, I think Sonoma County has one of those. But. Yeah, you don't want a bunch of inexperienced hikers trying to, <laughs> yeah, no. trying to go out and look for somebody yeah, down there. No, so, you know, it's a combination of tools that are needed, but I think that having a stronger, consistent relationship um, with Humboldt County and the DA's office um, it was, is a great place to start there. So, you know, that's one other thing. And then uh, building... Uh, new diversion programs to try to get people out of the system. I think that's, you know, in long term, we want to keep people out because when people get in, the odds are they're going to stay, you know, coming back. Um, recidivism rates are really high. And so if we can cut that off at the beginning for young people, um, you know, address uh, sometimes generational issues, drugs, mental health, steer them towards treatment, have them held accountable still, um, you know, pay restitution if there's a victim, uh, and try to get them without a conviction because if they can jump through those ho those hoops and stuff, then they're capable of, you know, getting a job and doing other things. And I think that's the real way that we're going to be able to steer off some of this, uh, you know, skyrocketing crime that we have. 
And are we talking lower level crime? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I, you know, I would go as far as um, you know, some low level felonies. Um, in know, terms of, uh, in terms of allowing those to be diverted. No, yes, but what what would you define as low level felonies? Um, stuff like uh, right now, uh, you know, I can, depending on the mat on the mat uh, the mat, <laughs> depending on the amount, I would say that um, theft. Um, you know, it's a, if it's a felony, it's over $950, but, you know, you're somewhere in the 900 to $2,000 range, and it's your first offense. Uh, a stolen vehicle, you know, or a joyriding vehicle, uh, driving without permission, for, you know, two different code sections. If it's, you know, first offense or first felony offense and the other, you know, might have a, you know, some sort of trespassing or some other minor thing, then I think it's worth giving a chance because, you know, the worst that happens is uh, they show that they can't jump through those hoops, and then we just prosecute them as regular. Not like that goes away. But giving that opportunity, uh, and it's not going to work for everybody, obviously, but getting that opportunity um, and get, you know, each person that we're able to get out and make them a productive member of society, that's big. You know, it's huge. Each person matters. Yeah, the criminal justice system definitely seems as though it has a, a fundamental break when it comes to jail, especially. And prison. And that it's not, it doesn't seem like it's structured in a way to actually rehabilitate these people. No. It's a punishment. Yeah. And I mean, there are, it depends on a number of factors. But I mean, the reality is that um, people that go to prison and now even to the local jail following realignment, which made it so people of non, of most felonies, a little more lower level felonies usually, serve their time in Humboldt County Jail. Um, but now in Humboldt County Jail, we've got, you know, many prison. And so we, you know, you do see uh, the gangs, you do see um, people being brought in, uh, you know, you might have someone there on a theft that's now being brought into this uh, more sophisticated criminals and, you know, they're recruiting. People come out worse and we pay $100,000 a year for that. So it makes sense fiscally and it makes sense morally um, to try and just as a practical matter to do everything we can to prevent that because we don't want to be the people that are spending that money to make worse criminals. You also do have the flip side of that, though, where criminals go in and they get off right away, especially during COVID, where the jail was... Oh, just, yeah, releasing just, people. Yeah, yeah, and two full. Yeah, and and the, then they come out back into society and they repeat offend. Yeah, exactly. So... If the penalty and it's become increasingly more, as we, you know, Prop Fifty Seven, which gave uh, CDCR, their, uh, our state prisons, uh, a lot of discretion on how they calculate credits and giving credits to people, people will end up spending, you know, a third of their time that they're sentenced to, um, and so in that third of a time, what we what did we do, you know, exposed maybe somebody to become a worse criminal, maybe that wasn't enough time, but we, you know, really haven't done anything but get a conviction and now we send this person back into our society. Um, hard to get a job or anything when you have a, a felony conviction, generally. Um, kind of pushing them back into doing dirt. And, you know, obviously there, I'm a huge um, proponent and of personal responsibility. And I don't think that we should be... Um, 
necessarily like, you know, holding anybody's hand or anything like that. I think that, you know, we see who we can kind of shake out and who's going to jump through the hoops and show that they can earn their way to not having a conviction. And, uh, you know, from both sides, being a public defender and knowing some folks um, that I've represented, um, and also when I was a prosecutor, I saw the situations where, man, you know, this isn't a bad person necessarily, you know. Um, let's give them an opportunity to earn something to show they can do it. And I, you know, I see a lot of people take pride in it. You know, some people kind of, there's a lot of people too that just kind of abuse, try to abuse it or whatever, but you can tell who those people are and you just kick them out and okay, go to prison. Even if our punishment now is down to a third of your, uh, you know, time that you were supposed to go. And that's not really our option. So let's try to do something else. Working as a public defender, have you ever come across one of those cases where you fully believe your client to be innocent and they still end up going to jail? Not for lack of <clears throat> trying on your part, because you hear about those cases, right? There was one I was reading about the other day where a man convicted of murder finally got out after like 30 years. Yeah. And those are way too common. Yeah, those are way too common. I, um, you know, I've seen a lot of cases it's hard sometimes to look at a case um, that's filed and go, wow, that person's 100% innocent, right? Yeah, it's going to um, be hard to tell. Yeah, I mean, you're reading, you know, statements that a police officer took, you know, and wrote down what other people said for the most part. So even when you talk to these people yourself with an investigator or whatever, um, you know, you're getting part of the story. So innocent, innocent is... Uh, you know, that's a high thing. That's almost like reverse proving someone 100% did it, right? Um, and so there's usually some facts that we're like, oh, maybe that happened. But the point is that the DA has to prove a case beyond a reasonable doubt. And so that's why there's a lot of not guilties, or they've been getting a lot of not guilties, is uh, they're not reading, meet, meeting that burden. And that's, you know, you have to be honest about that. And what I see... Uh, this is one example happened last summer um, had this case and this you know 25 year old man was a roommate him and his roommate got into an argument over something really silly his roommate uh, was like you need to leave the house it's more of that guy's house you know uh, whatever and my client was like okay and he's in his room you know cleaning up stuff but he's taking you know a while and so the uh, victim uh, is strolling back and forth and he's like holding a chain or something and kind of yelling at him, get moving, you know, get the F out of my house, that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, then at some point the victim comes at my client and tackles him, um, tries to punches him in the face. My client grabs a knife and stabs him as he's like, it's in the. It sounds bad because it's in the back, but it's like he's on. Top, he's he's on, on top of yeah. the type of thing. And he stabs him, and uh, they continue to wrestle on the ground. And my client's like, "Dude, you're bleeding pretty bad." And the guy like gets up and leaves. My client uh, go leaves the house too and goes over to the neighbors and calls the police. And uh, they talk to the victim, and the victim says, "I don't know." what happened 
uh, all I can say is that uh, I was really drunk and I went at him. That's all I remember. He's, he was that drunk. My client was sober and was like, yeah, he was drunk and he attacked me. And um, during the you know interview with the police, he said um, that um, I would have killed him. And so they were like attempted murder. <clears throat> and, and so, you know, police, that's what they wrote, attempted murder. You know, uh, that's what he's charged with. Um, and that's what it says in the report. I would have killed him. So there's his, you know, trying to prove his state of mind. That, he, that his goal was to kill him. And so I get the body-worn camera and watch the video. And it's literally, I would have killed him had if I had to. Attacking. If yeah. I had to, <laughs> you know? And then he talk, then goes on for the next two minutes talking about protecting himself. So at the preliminary hearing, I got all the charges dropped except for assault with a deadly weapon for some reason. It didn't really make any sense logically to me, but... They still charged him with that. Yeah. And so at that point, after you, you know, I play the video in the hearing and they, in the DA sees it and that's all they have, you would kind of suspect, all right, we're not going to go further with this. Um, and then comes to trial confirmation, like three weeks, they, they file, you know, they file the assault charge because that's all they were able to get to hold. Three weeks later, guy's still in jail. My client's confused. Um, like what's going on? And three weeks later, it's trial confirmation. Or, and um, I asked the prosecutor, hey, uh, you know, have you looked at this? Like, because someone else did the preliminary hearing. That's the other problem. The DA's office is, you know, they keep transferring files over. So no one's has ownership of it. So like, have you looked at this? Did you read the preliminary hearing? Did you watch the video? And prosecutors sort of joke, oh, I'll do it, you know, the weekend before trial. And I was like, no, dude, like the student's in jail. Look at it. And, you know, to his credit, he did look at it and goes, oh, I don't think I can prove that. I'll probably dismiss it, but I got to call the victim. I'm like, okay. And then like another couple of weeks go by and... Your client is still in jail yeah. during this time. Another couple of weeks go by and... um Oh, yeah. Uh, we called the victim. Weren't able to get a hold of the victim. So that tells you we're at like two months into this. They haven't even talked to the victim in this case. And this is all they have is that his statement saying he was drunk and then he went at him. Okay. And they, but we got a hold of his mom. And his mom says that he might remember something now. Okay. So then they, another week goes by. Oh, we, we brought him in and we talked to him. And he doesn't remember anything else. He just said he was just drunk. Same thing as we said in the police report. Okay, still don't dismiss it. The next Friday is trial assignment, where the trial's literally starting on Monday. Um, and, you know, Maggie Flaming comes down and tells the court, oh, we, uh, we ha unfortunately have to dismiss this because we lost a witness. You didn't lose a witness. You talked to him last week. That's the first time you talked to him, which is unbelievable. Um, as well, you know, what about victim services? You know, guy got stabbed in the back. If they really thought they did this, but anyway, says they lost him. You didn't lose him, and then, you know, I explained this guy's been in jail for eighty-one days. He spent in for protecting himself. That's the only thing. Eighty-one days for self-defense. Yes, because they weren't able to make a decision, and they just didn't care to make a decision. It seemed like, and then lied to the court that they lost their witness, and then then I pointed that out. And then they're like, oh, yeah, well, we did talk to him, but uh, we do have the witness, but, you know, we're looking for additional information. We were told that there's additional information. I was like, well, still a couple of weeks ago. 
and you guys confirmed for trial. You guys said you're ready to go to trial. And that is not something that's irregular. That's that, pretty common. It's common. It's like that's not what you want to hear. No, it's and that's, that's not a comforting feeling. It was it's stuff like that. It was just so frustrating. And then you know when they talk about like, oh well you know we were just trying to investigate more. Is that an excuse? You didn't talk. You didn't even try to call the victim for two months. And then when I pointed out, you guys don't have a case. You reluctantly do. I mean, thank you. Um, and then agree with me, but then still, you know, drag it out to the, the last possible second to, I don't, and then, you know, what does that tell, you know, there's so many times that, that calendar, that trial assignment where they decide where trials go, there's so many dismissals. So what does that, you know, and there's a bunch of guys, a bunch of defendants sitting there and they're like, what does that tell you? If you just wait, we're going to get a better deal at the end. What does that, research. what does that say to you as somebody in that field? Does that show incompetence or negligence or just a lack of desire to to release cases they know they can't stand on i think i think that's the main thing is decisiveness i think that that office runs in a very in a manner that is um we don't want to be the accountable person which is ridiculous because that's what a da does what a da should be doing from the they're the gatekeeper they should be deciding stuff right off the bat saving police resources saving taxpayer money accountable in the terms that they don't want to let the wrong guy right. go yeah exactly and I, like, sure. I understand that you know sometimes stuff like that that happens um and then, then you know it comes back on you right um but if you don't have the evidence you just say that we don't have the evidence like that's your duty you don't drag a case on um and not investigate and, you know there's some cases where you might not have it beyond a reasonable doubt but you need to keep someone off the street and like a very serious dangerous person and then you spend that time actively investigating you don't wait you know, you get on it. Um, I mean, those are situations. But what I see is a lack of decisiveness. There's a, you know, the strategy for cases is basically charge as much as we can, uh, dismiss everything except for one charge, and we'll call that charge open, which means that they're not offering probation. They're going to argue some prison term. Most of the time, they know that, you know, under the law, they, there's factors. The rule of court say this is where, how you get probation. And if they're eligible, they're eligible, you know? And so, the, but just out of having that stance, not saying we offer probation, the wait, wait for the judge to like, okay, if pleads open, I'll indicate as a sentence, there'll be probation. So why do that? Well, if something goes wrong, they can go, whoa, whoa, we already should go to prison. The judge is the one that gave him probation. So I think it's um, not wanting to be accountable. And I see that with juries. So they lose a jury trial and they learn nothing from it because they're like, Oh, that was a bad jury. Or the judge gave us bad decisions. No, you just didn't have the case. So evaluate your case, you know, and don't wait until the weekend before. That's not very comforting hearing that, I'll be honest. That that kind of ties into the standard trope of the system's a little broken. No, it's extremely that's why, you know, going into this, I know that it this isn't something I'm gonna be able to turn around overnight. You know, it's going to take time. And that's why I'm starting with that foundation of getting some technology in there, reorganizing positions, um, so we can actually build an office that's modern. And, you know, a DA represents the people, means they represent the defendant as well. Yes, they're prosecuting, but the paramount goal for a DA is, is to do what's best in societal interest. That's the goal. Seek the truth, get justice, 
how do we prevent this person from engaging in this criminal behavior in the future? What's going to be the strategy? Let's, you know, what are the, what led to this? Some people, you're not going to, you know, be able to offer therapy and, you know, drug program and, you know, they're going to get better. There's just, you know, some people it's not, but, um, we got to try or we can, and we got to evaluate, um, people individually. Uh, it has to be one by one because the needs of society and the needs of particular folks, uh, defendants are, isn't something that you can just, you know, take a sledgehammer to it's using a scalpel and going, okay, this person, this is the best way, the best chance we have of getting this person out of the system instead of just going, uh, you know, like an assembly line of cases. And that's where you end up with those situations where there's no ownership and you have a person that just spent 81 days in jail for protecting themselves. Yeah, that's wrong. I mean, I'm a firm believer for better or worse, because you could make the argument that it's better to let five criminals go than, than lock up one innocent person. Yeah. I, I, you know, I don't think we fortunately don't have to ever make that decision. Yeah, it should right? be, it should be that way. You know, there are, but that's such a problem. You hear about innocent people yeah. just getting decades yeah. for crimes that they didn't commit for evidence that was already out there and just never looked at until right. decades later. I mean, that's just, it's far too common. Yeah. No, I, you know, and you know what's it, when I see those, what sometimes is one of the most insanely impressive things, I guess I'd say, is you know you see those stories, and the people get out, and they're like, oh, you know, not everyone, but a lot of them don't have like a grudge, which you know? is surprising. You know, I they're would like, be ready to. I know, like, I'd be you? pissed. Yeah, I'd be so pissed. You have your life taken away. You know, if you have kids, you missed all their birthdays, all that stuff. I mean, your life is essentially. Like you said, it's taken away from you. Yeah. You're put into a cage. Yeah. And if, you know, you were truly, you know, convicted on uh, lies or false evidence or whatever, um, and that's how they got you there, it's, you know, that, how do you not have some just like rage about that? Um, so, you know, when I see those people that are like, you know, uh, just happy that I'm out, <laughs> it's like, what? it's impressive. And, you know, that's the other thing, you know, when you talk about being a prosecutor is, you know, there should never be that situation. Being a prosecutor isn't about winning. It's about doing the right thing. It's about, it's about putting away the actual criminals. Right. It's seeking justice and the truth. That's it, you know, and you present the truth. And so if you're not presenting the truth uh, and, you know, you have a witness that you think is, whoa, you don't believe in and you put them on there. Just for the goal of, well, it's not eh, the jury might believe him. Well, if you don't believe him, that's probably giving you a pretty good signal if you've been doing this long enough. So, you know, so I think that kind of it ties back into some of the campaign stuff when I see, you know, attacks, lies, uh, misrepresentations made by people that are prosecutors attacking me. I'm like, well, what does that say about your character? As a prosecutor, can we trust you to be a prosecutor if, you know, I know it's a little bit of a different uh, arena, but at the end of the day, you're doing the same kind of stuff to win. And that seems to be the drive, right? And that's that shouldn't be the drive ever in the courtroom. 
And the fear is then that it could translate into the courtroom. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's how I kind of see it. Um, I, you know, I think we want people that, um, understand that the job isn't about, uh, convictions and getting long sentences. It's about doing the right thing. And, you know, sometimes that's giving a person a second chance. Sometimes that is, you know, I've sent, uh, a person to prison for 50 years to life, you know, and I wasn't like, you know, clapping or anything. I just was like, you know, that that's what needed to happen here. That person I don't see being someone that we would want around in our community at all. And so, <clears throat> you know, they're gonna have to wait 50 years to have a shot at parole. And, um, you know, and that's what needed to happen in that case. So it's, you know, it's treating each case uh, relative to what the seriousness is of it, as well as treating each case in a manner that you think you might be able to achieve justice for the victims and justice for society. Um, and sometimes that means giving somebody a second chance in certain cases, um, and sometimes it doesn't. Have you ever worked on a case where you believed your client was was guilty? I mean, all the time. <laughs> Is that hard to? Because obviously, it's important that somebody represents them, yeah. right? Has that been hard to morally kind of rectify, or how do you how do you deal with that? No, it's not because it, it it's a job, right? So the way that I see it is, um, I have this obligation to be a zealous advocate for my client, and um, and that's you know to make every reasonable argument on their behalf. Um, and the way that I had approached being a district attorney, I was deputy DA, you know, it was very much the same in a lot of ways. I would, you know, I'd get a case in and I'd be looking at it at charging. I'd read the case and I'm like, oh, we got a pretty serious search issue here. You know, I, I you know, I think they might've illegally detained this guy, you know, even though we found that he had guns and drugs after the search and you know as hard as that can be um you know if it's if it's just a clear sometimes there's a gray area but if it's just a clear illegal search i just call the officer and be like hey let's talk about this search let's let's improve um you may here's here's where i see the mistakes are maybe there's some stuff you could fill me in about that i that you don't have on paper if there is um let me hear, you know, exactly how it was done. If they have the body-worn camera, then I can, you know, watch how the, or dash cam, I can watch how a stop was made or whatever. But if it's clear, then, all right, I'm not going to file this case because we're going to lose. What we'll do is we'll file it. They'll file a motion to suppress. They'll win. We we'll ha won't have any evidence, and the person will go. So we've wasted the resources, essentially, if it's a clear case. As a public defender... I'm now sitting here waiting for those cases to come through and I've been, you know, getting the cases, looking and going, oh, there's a search issue and then filing it and then we litigate it and then my client goes free. So what was the point of them filing it and doing all that if you know the law and understand the context? You just wasted resources and time, valuable court time. Um, you know, so it, but again, if it's a closer call, then yeah, litigate it, argue it out if it's, but sometimes it's clear and I've been, you know, winning 
those cases uh, as a public defender. But, you know, part of that was because when I was at the DA's office, I, you know, Maggie Fleming sent me to training to be the expert in search warrants and informants and those issues. And it's really now ironic that uh, she's trying to spin this conversation into like, I, you know, that I was fired because I withheld evidence or I talked to a witness. And if you read my memo, it's that, you know, they post it on Lost Coast. I spell it out very clearly. You know, one, you're the person that sent me to be the expert on this. I'm the expert. I know the exact context. I, this isn't anything remotely like that. This isn't talking to a witness. This is talking to a person that heard a rumor. Why would that rumor matter if it's not admissible in court or anything? It could give us a little piece of evidence if there is corroborating evidence that we already have. And that's what we had. We had these four cases against a defendant, one being a murder case. We had four cases that nobody in the sheriff's department read together. And if you read those cases together, because I'm prosecuting the guy, so I read in all four cases, I read them together, you see these common threats, these common uh, things. Like one is that uh, he would put a gun to someone's head and this happened two different witnesses, two different times, telling two different cops. Put a gun to the person's head and said, look into my eyes when I kill you. So why are they not seeing these things? I do I do want to take a step back because I yeah. do I want to dive into that. Because yeah. this is for better or worse, this is one of those gray areas surrounding your campaign is being fired from the district attorney's yeah. office. And this is in regards to the Ryan Tanner case, yeah. right? Do you want to just set the stage for that kind of sure, from yeah. the beginning? Yeah. So um, in 2020, I was assigned another homicide. I think at the time I was already had five homicides or something. I just got done with another homicide trial. Um, and it's this Ryan Tanner case. Um, you know, the basics of it are that, you know, look, Two days before the young man was murdered, um, the neighbors who had known Ryan for a long time uh, called the police and said, hey, uh, this guy just held us up on the, on the road out in Edersburg, you know, their neighbors, big dirt road or whatever. Um, he wouldn't let us go by. He was holding uh, some sort of semiotic weapon and he was, you know, kind of talking to himself or talking to a shadow person, like kind of looking back and going, should I kill him? Should I kill him? Really, really scary behavior. He holds them there for, you know, one of them for, I think a half hour or whatever it is. One gets out a little bit early and he's like, you can go. That guy goes and calls cops and goes down, meets the cop at the end of the road, tells the cop what's happening. Second guy comes, separately tells the cop what's happening, you know, and the story's the line. Uh, the police report reads that um, there wasn't probable cause to go check. It was absolutely ridiculous. But it also said that didn't want to go up there uh, because, you know, I'm, I'm a police officer by myself. And if the air guns up there, you know, that'd be pretty dangerous. Okay, that's legit. Like, but maybe we'll get some more people. Probably a good idea. <laughs> Call us a backup. <laughs> wait there, do something. Anything, they just said there's no probable cause, which was absurd. Um, the just two guys are like sitting in their house the next day and they're like, what's going on, dude? Like, this is, we're scared. They drive from Edersburg to 
Eureka to the main station. Talk to officers there. And the officers go, oh, yeah, we heard something about this guy. You know, we're, we're on it. Okay, they go back down to Edersburg. That night, uh, Ryan Tanner uh, kidnaps Jason Garrett on the side of the, on that road, um, puts him in the back of his truck, drives him uh, to his house, slits his throat, um, and then takes him down with another guy um, that he is, that's kind of like that works with Tanner that is like super scared of Tanner. Um, takes him down to his dad's like secondary unit, and they put him in a bathtub and shoot him in the head. Um, After and, slitting his throat, yeah. He, because he, yeah, I think it must have been pretty, it was bleeding. And but not. They, they put duct tape on it after. Okay. Um, but it wasn't like, you know, deep. So it wasn't like they slit the jugular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and so they, and shoot him and then uh, Tanner makes the other guy uh, put him in the back of the truck. They drive up the hill, find a, a uh, water tank, push the water tank to the side. And uh, Tanner holds the gun while making the other guy dig a hole. They throw the body in there. Tanner goes back down, burns his dad's secondary unit down to the ground. Um, Which was where the bathtub was. Yeah. Okay. And in, in the interim of all that, uh, there was a a girl that was with uh, the victim in the beginning and she had run into the woods. Um, Tanner went back and, and she had like a motor home down the street, maybe like a quarter mile. Um, He went and burned that down. Um, and then, you know, as that was one of the one case, that was the murder case. Then I'm looking at these other cases where he did very similar stuff and it, it weren't amount to murder, but assault with a firearm. Threatening. Threatening. With a firearm. Yeah. And okay. those kinds of things. And in any event, um, when I get the case, you know, we're working on it. I, you know, I'm, you know, I go out like with the initial search warrant, I'm assigned it right away. So I go out like on initial search warrant with an investigator. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I see the scene and, you know, give some advice or whatever. And, you know, I come back and, you know, go back to my other cases and things are kind of trickling in as they do. Um, you know, cases come right away. And, um, one of the detectives like, I can't believe they left that gun. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, yeah, they left the gun on the counter. I was like, what? This is after they performed a search warrant at his yeah, house. They, so what happened was the way that whoever was in charge viewed it was this is the case we're working on here. This search warrant is for this murder. And they see a, gu- a shot-off shotgun on the counter. And uh, one of the other patrol officers that's there in the search is like, oh, I think that's the gun that was used in the assault of another guy in, in case number two over here. And they go, no, well, this is for this case, so we're not taking anything. So they leave a sawed-off shotgun on someone's counter who they are accusing of some shooting someone in the head with a different gun. Is that standard procedure? Is it, okay, because that it's sounds banana. pretty crazy. It's bananas. Yeah. It's absolutely it seems like you would take all absolute of incompetence. And my, if you read my memo when I'm talking about that, because, I mean, Maggie Fleming parroted what the police would say. Well, they weren't there for any legal gun investigation. I was like, well, what if they just saw a kilo of cocaine sitting on the counter? I think they literally just left that. It makes no sense. Well, especially where it's a murder case involving a gun. You would think yeah, it would and take it, all of the weapons. Everything. And, I mean, consider the fact that this guy, at that time, before I recharged it, I recharged it in special circumstances. Because Maggie originally just charged murder. I recharged it to special circumstances murder for kidnapping the guy and then murdering him. Um, that made it so he couldn't bail out. 
before, he could have put his property up, bell out, come home, there's a sawed-off shotgun. Are you kidding me? So <clears throat> so they leave the gun. They you leave. hear about it. Yeah. And so I, you know, uh, tell Maggie and uh, they kind of superficially write a search warrant, don't have us review it or anything. Um, they send one patrol officer out. And I'm like, well, why, if you're going to go back out there, like, you know, make it worth your time. You know, we have, you know, at this point, I had another sheriff's uh, deputy tell me that he had uh, talked to community members down there that said that this guy had been killing trimigrants for years. Tanner was. Yeah. And I was like, okay. And then you look at some of these reports, you see these, uh, well, the fact that he killed somebody and then buried him. And then you have the fact that he's assaulted numerous people with firearms. Um, in there, there was uh, crazy stuff happening or like uh, that would suggest that there he had, you know, there was no like proof, proof evidence, but there was collaborating evidence that said, yeah, this guy, it there may have murdered women and buried them. Like he had this like grave site that he would pray to like about 50 yards from his house. And there was just a lot of weird stuff like that. Gravesite with actual bodies that they found? No, no, no. There was just, just like, little... there was like, there was like women's, uh, he had like this site that he put like women's clothes on and like jewelry around and he would like pray to it. Um, kind of a red flag. Yeah. No, there I was a lot of red flags. There was, you know, kind there, of there was a ton of red flags. Right. And so I was like, okay, well, if you're, if you're going to go out there, one, I told him, I don't think the gun's going to be there anymore, but there's other stuff that we need to find. He attacked somebody with a sword, so we got to try to find this ninja sword. So this is now the second but, yeah. visit to his yeah. house. And so um, I'm like, if you're going to go out there, you might as well you know, try to gather some more information that would corroborate um, some of the stuff that suggests that he had killed a woman out there, right? Um, and then we could go back with a search warrant, you know, and we, at that point you would need uh, – cadaver dogs you need heavy equipment you need all those things right um, but if we're gonna go out there why don't you guys make an effort instead they don't even send a detective they send one patrol officer out and were you getting pushback on that from the da's office as no, well that was just the police they were just kind of doing it like superficially because i was mad that they left again so okay. like okay well the police go. were that's how i took it and maggie oh. as well um so so no cadaver dogs no nothing yeah but so me and uh the da investigator assigned to the case uh we both go um, out there with the patrol officer, he was able to get another officer who um, had welding equipment so they could get into a safe that they didn't get in before, which um, was filled with women's underwear. Um, <laughs> just scary stuff. The whole thing was really scary. And um, so this other deputy tells me that one of these people uh, knows me um, from another murder case that I had done in Southern Humble. And he uh, tells me everything that he says. And basically, so I understand it's like a rumor that's not going to have any evidentiary value um, except for in a context of getting a search warrant down the road. And so this is the person that you talked to that yeah. was deemed as you visiting a witness yeah. and, and interfering in a sense by yeah. uh, Maggie specifically in, in the DA's office. They had a problem with that. Yeah. And so I talked to him on the phone. Um, because they're supposed that puts you in or could potentially put you in a sticky situation if it, it was brought to court. If it was a witness. If it was a witness. It was a, if it was a witness that observed something or has had a chance of being called to court, yeah. 
And you knew that they hadn't been yeah. prior to talking to yeah, them. Yeah, because I talked to the deputy before that told me, I, I questioned him all about it. And he's like, yeah, basically he just overheard something in a bar of two acquaintances of Tanner. Um, so one, you don't know how those two people in the bar know Tanner or know the information that they're saying. There's no foundation. There's no value to it. It's not like that we saw it and we saw him bury a woman or whatever. They're just talking about, oh, you know, Tanner, you know, kills women up there or whatever. And so you went to talk to somebody that heard a room. It was basically heard, a Overheard room. those guys. Hearsay, yeah. Yeah, so we're talking about two levels of hearsay, three levels of hearsay. protects you from yeah. the fear that, that the I'd be called. Okay. It, it, it's, and it would be in a whole different proceeding because we're not talking about the same case. We're talking about him murdering somebody else. So it has nothing to do with the other case. So you were essentially protected from the fear that they had Absolutely. of it being murky yeah. in a trial situation. 100%. Okay. And so uh, I talked to him, and the only question I wanted to ask him was, did, when you overheard these people, did they say anything about, um, one, using a firearm? And he's like, no, I didn't, didn't get to that. And Or two, something about looking into their eyes, because we had that common threat, right? Then the sheriff's office would never know to ask, because they don't... They, care to read all the cases together they're only looking at that one yeah, specific they're looking case. at their one case so i was like you know uh so i just asked when i was like no i was like okay that's it that was the whole meeting. that's it and was it in person you said it was a phone call <laughs> it was a phone call it was a phone call yeah and so i was like that's it and um then they tried to you know i think the thing was i was uh about the firearm part and the fact that nobody read all the reports together um and they didn't seem to, the supervising detective didn't seem to care. Which also caused some tension. It seemed like so Maggie, that was, was, I, so Maggie I think, was upset that you were kind of pushing the police a little that, bit. And that's what I think it was about, right? Is that I was rude to those guys. And I, you know, I've, again, more law enforcement support than uh, my opponent, Stacy. And so, I mean, people know what I'm about and it's getting stuff done. And it, I don't treat people, I don't cuss at people. In this case, I did. And all I said was, if you're not going to do it, then I'll effing do it. And talking about writing the the later search warrant because I just thought it was absurd, especially following all the criticism and Murder Mountain and all these missing people and not going for the Rodriguez case and all this stuff that happened just before and the Sheriff's Department being so worried about it. And now you have this situation where you have clear probable cause. You have a murderer. <laughs> you guys could have done something to try to prevent that guy from getting murdered because the neighbors had told you twice. Like, this looks like a big shit show for you. And <clears throat> the... You know, the response was, huh? And so I was like, all right, I'll, talk, I'll, you know, ask this guy. And it's not like I thought that information was going to give me probable cause. Added to the things that we had, yes, gives you probable cause. Sure enough, after uh, I was uh, terminated, they did all of the things that I said. They used my analysis to get a search warrant like four months later. And they made the phone calls while I was still in the office Maggie had her chief investigator call and say, oh, I think there is probable cause now, using my analysis. Okay, Tom's backing up a little bit. So this happens, you talk to the witness or the person who has some hearsay information. Mm -hmm. Maggie asks you to write a memo explaining what was done, or she writes a memo to you? How does that she, play So out? she asked me just a factual memo of what happened, basically talking about uh, my conversation with the detective and that search warrant and did she reprimand you in any way for the actions or just express no, she, that she was yeah and happy? then like later she then said well 
I need to know the name of the person that you talk to. And this is when you write that second so memo. So that's when I write the second memo. And then she, and I wrote the second memo. I'm like, okay. Because, you know, the writing was kind of on the wall there. She, I could see like them. like that She all, was upset? Upset with me. And so okay. that they were, you know, trying to do something. So they, But she hadn't expressed that she was upset with you yet. Directly called you into her office, done any meetings? Not expressly, no. Okay. Um, it was we had one meeting, and it was about, um, you know, the uh, me being rude to the officer and being, uh, you know, calling them out for not, you know, leaving the shotgun and calling for them some out negligence. for negligence. Yeah, and you know, they assured me that changes were made and all that kind of stuff. Um, but you know, that was a conversation that we had, and then, um, you know. She asked me then later for a memo for the game of the guy. So I was like, oh, that's strange. Because um, she said it was a Brady type issue. And I was like, this has nothing to do with Brady. Like, do you know what that means? Like, this is it. I don't. What is a Brady Yeah, so that's issue? the thing is so under Mary- – Oh, Board uh, Brown or what is it? No, it's Maryland versus Brady. Brady. And essentially – That's what could have put you into pressure had it gone to court. No. Okay. Well, that's what that's what the you know the issue is. It is not remotely related to that. She's like, there's a Brady type issue, and I'm like, okay. So Brady requires that the prosecution turn over any evidence that can be um, exculpatory or mitigate a sentence. So that would be something that uh, like there was another shooter or something like that, or like we had evidence that the person that would go that helped the defendant essentially anything that would help the defendant. How a per, a unrelated case with a person being accused of committing other murders would be something that would help him is ridiculous. Um, so it's clearly not Brady. And all Brady requires is, well, if, he, if we thought that, then we just give it to the defense. We just turn it over to him. What do we care? I don't, no one cares. If we, you know, what are the defense is gonna go, oh shit, my guy is being accused of killing other people. Hope that, hope they don't get enough evidence on that. Like, so it had nothing to do with that. So the idea that she says a Brady type issue, I was like, well, that's strange. Apparently she doesn't know what that means. Or they're trying to find a way to uh, attack me because I, you know, the way that she literally said it in their office was that I was disrupting the, disrupting the, um, since Paul Gallegos left, they had to rebuild their relationship with law enforcement. And I was disturbing what they had cultivated. She thought you were jeopardizing that relationship. Yeah. Okay. By calling them out and cussing at that one guy. And she's telling you this after you've written the second memo. And she she's was, called you into her office. I can't remember if that was at the first or the second, but it was somewhere in there. And okay. in any event, I was like, okay. Well, I think it was before because I, I took that into consideration when I was writing this thing. Because, you know, clearly my memo... One, explains what Brady is and goes through that entire analysis and how could you ever think this. Um, and then I pointed out, you know, we don't have a Brady policy in this office. You know, I'm hearing rumors that a detective involved in this case had committed some unethical violations that we would need to turn over to the other side. But you put, like, literally build a wall or put your head in the sand to not let any of your deputies know this, which all puts us at risk of losing our jobs or losing our bar licenses. And she's like, it, it, there was no Brady policy whatsoever. It's, I was lucky to hear that there was a internal investigation on a detective. So I put that in the memo and I put the fact that they left the gun on the memo and I put some other things in the memo that was just like, you know, what is these, are, these are the issues. These are the things. So why are you trying to manufacture this 
completely outrageous claim has nothing to do with what the law that you're even stating. Um, and so I, then I give them that, and that's when she didn't talk to me for a month, and then the next day took away at least two homicide cases without saying a word to me, um, and removed my memo from the file, which I was like, because I went and talked to the prosecutor, took it. I was like, did you read my memo on this? And she's like, no. Went your on, first memo or your second uh, one? The second one. Okay, which was the longer yeah, one. Yeah, and she's like, no, what are we talking about? So I went and reprinted it and put it back in there. Um, all of that stuff was like, to me, insane. Um, and in, so I think the whole thing was um, they were trying to find a way to push me out because they didn't like the way that I disrupted the relationship with the sheriff's department. And literally that's, you know, my relationship with law enforcement is super strong because they know I expect um, things to, to be done the right way. And when I, you know, as I did in this case, advised, hey, this is what you should go do to find that shotgun. I don't think it's going to be there anymore because, you know, I had other information from another detective that the house was ransacked the night after. It was the Convenient. Yeah. And so uh, anyway, in, in terms of that, I brought in the neighbor, one guy that got assaulted um, by Tanner and with my investigator and I told him, Hey man, like we need that shotgun. And this is what I told the police, ask the neighbors, ask the girlfriend, ask people down in shelter cove in that white thorn area, people that might know something. And so we brought the uh, neighbor in and I was like, Hey, you know, can you start asking around for this gun? We need the gun. You know, I, and he's like, yeah, you know, I'll do what I can. Three weeks later, gives my investigator a call. We get the shotgun. The first that was the first thing I asked the sheriff's department to do. You know, instead they wrote that superficial search warrant that started this whole chain of events. Anyway, um, so I think what it boiled down to was I think one a misunderstanding of the law by Maggie to some extent. I could you know as I prodded, um, which is a pretty big statement because she's the district attorney at this point, you would assume yeah, that she has some high level of competence in certain things, you know? Um, but, uh, it was, it became clear to me probably in my second or third year, I think the second year that I really, when I, you know, go to ask questions, the response was usually they'll go post the question on the district attorney's association's board online. Um, and again, like I said, there was, you know, some of those cases, trials I did early on, I asked for advice and I went down there and followed it and it turned out to be completely wrong. So I learned, learned pretty early as, uh, a lot of the other senior, uh, people in that office learned was that, uh, her knowledge of the law isn't really that deep. And I'm not That's saying, not comforting. I'm not saying that to be a jerk. I'm just saying that as like, I mean, in certain things certain areas, uh, I think she's good at. She's well-versed, but, but, but lacking in others. Lacking in others. And, you know, and that's part of the reason that I, you know, it, w- it was confusing that she sent me to become the expert in this area. And that person, to make, to go one step further, the person that she sent me that training in 2016, the guy that wrote the manual um, on uh, search warrants and investigations, 30 plus years in the Santa Clara office, a guy named Mike Galley. Um, we sent, or not we, but uh, my uh, buddy down in uh, Mendocino sent him a message, said, hey, uh, here are all the memos and stuff re- relating to uh, my buddy getting fired, and could you take a look at it? 
certain, he called me like a week ago, maybe a little longer now. Um, and first time I ever talked to him, I didn't talk to him in the training, just, you know, one of those trainings and, um, first time I ever talked to him and he's recently retired 35 years has written the manual four times over. He's the guy. And he was like, did you, she just come from civil law? Like, this is completely ridiculous. He did nothing wrong. I was like, thank you. Can you please call the Lost Coast Outpost and tell them this? Like, that's what they should have done from the start. And he's like, sure. And uh, my understanding from that was that the Lost Coast reporter basically uh, saw this as like becoming a proxy war between uh, my expert, who's not my expert, he's the expert in the state that wrote the manual that's in that office and in all the other counties' offices on how to deal with these issues. Um, and then on the other side is, you know, the person that uh, Maggie talked to, uh, who is, you know, uh, she's the uh, mother, uh, godmother of the guy's kid, and she paid him, you know, $50,000 to come up here and try a case. Um, so, so is that really going to be a proxy war? Um, and, you know, again, they try to sort of shift what the argument was. Well, you're not, he broke office pro, uh, policy by talking to a witness. One, not a witness again. But two. Yeah, they seem to hammer that pretty hard yeah, online. But two, that policy that she made us uh, sign was done after the fact. It was done when I turned in my memo. She then had people come in and sign this policy. So I didn't break any policy because the policy was made after. after. Even if you would consider that a witness. Um, I agree that in cases when you're talking to anybody that's actually a witness, you should absolutely have an investigator there. Um, the idea, you know, it was a misdemeanor attorney. She used to say, oh, well, you have to talk to your victims. Um, but if they tell you something new, then just uh, run down and pick up one of the investigators and have the investigator uh, listen in. And then, you know, in the memo that she wrote back, she says the opposite. Oh, because I was like, even if this was remotely close to any of what you're talking about, all I'd have to do is have the, an investigator talk to him. She's like, oh, well, that's not going to solve it. Well, that's what you taught us. All right. Um, but anyway, the... Um, the expert in the state was like, this isn't even a close call. He's like, reading between the lines, I can tell you they just sounds like they just wanted to get rid of you. I was like, yeah. And I, it was because I think they saw me as, one, a threat. Uh, a threat to, for the DA position eventually? Uh, yeah, down the road. And two, that I was disturbing the relationship with the sheriff's department. There was something that I read about the star witness, Chris Champagne. Yeah. And how um, his testimony in preliminary hearings proved hallucinatory bordering on unhinged. He falsely claimed that Jenner had also murdered six Leos after killing Garrett, which was false. Yeah. How did that come into play? Well, was, I was, was gone the, by that. It was reassigned. You had already been removed. Re reassigned. I was working at the public defender's office. Okay. Because that came up in relation to you and I couldn't find the connection. That's why I wanted to ask. Yeah, I had nothing to do with that. Um, I think that was in relation to why they didn't press harder on charges or no, something. No, no. Well, the reason that they didn't press harder on charges, and I talked to the prosecutor about this, and um, I agree with her um, to some extent. I think that they, when you put everything together uh, with the other witnesses, it tends to show what parts of what Chris Champagne was saying was true. But he was a, a very risky witness. So I, I don't actually have that much of a problem with that. I think that... Overall, he got off lightly, mm -hmm. but and I don't agree with the manslaughter. Um, but they had to make 
a decision there um, with Chris Champagne. Chris Champagne is a person that was that what I was talking about was the person that dug the hole. Mm-hmm. So and his his uh, testimony went, went on for days, is what I understand. And and, and it, I read some of it online. I talked to some people about it, and it it was completely nuts. If he was the only witness, then absolutely, you'd be like, oh, this case is dicey, done, you know. But um, and so I, I understand that part, but yeah, that none of that had anything to do with me. You were like, already gone. I was gone, and yeah, and I and I knew that was going to be. I mean, that was literally one of the first things I wrote um, when talking to uh, the detectives. Was you know, this is how the defense is going to play this case? They're going to point it at Chris Champagne, so we need to start countering that from right now. And so, you know, it was obvious from the start where it was going to go. Um, but yeah, for, it sounds like he got real loopy. Um, you know, there was another witness that was um, there and I, I wrote this in the memo to just show you, show Maggie that I understand the difference. Cause so uh, deputy prior and I were walking with this witness and he was kind of going around showing, you know, where things happened. This was one of the guys that got uh, Tanner put a gun to his head and said he was going to kill him. And he said that Chris Champagne, when he drove him up there to go work on the weed farm or whatever, uh, Chris Champagne told him, uh, yeah, this is where Tanner and I uh, rape and kill, kill girls. And I wasn't sure that Deputy Pryor heard that because I was like, <laughs> that's crazy. Um, so I was like, okay, and Deputy Pryor just like, you know, five feet in front of me maybe. And I was like, Deputy Pryor, did you hear that? Um because now we're, that's a witness, right? So it sh- just shows that I understand. I was like, did you hear that? He's like, oh, yeah, I kind of part of it or whatever. I was like, make sure you get that down, take the notes, and then make sure it's in your report. Because I understand that rule. Um, but yeah, that also shows that Chris Champagne, you know, with statements like that, and then uh, his credibility in general um, became a risky witness. And I think that's, uh, you know, why they ended up where they did. But at the end of the day, you know, while I'm not 100% thrilled with how it ended up, I think that, you know, it's a reasonable resolution. Which was just a manslaughter charge? Manslaughter, or? and then he pled to, like, seven other felony charges uh, from those other ca- other victims, including the neighbors. So Manslaughter seems pretty light for kidnapping a guy and then slitting his throat and shooting him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's what, you know, back when they had the death penalty, that's a death penalty case. Yeah, that ties back into not being comforting information. Yeah. So, so just to wrap it up, you wrap this portion up. You you turn in that last memo. A month goes by without talking to Maggie. She starts limiting your cases, and then she fires you. Yeah. So what what actually happened was they so that Friday, she gives me her memo in the office with the investigator there. Um, I'm reading it, and as like in front of them. And I, you know, I'm going, well, you know, this isn't true. This isn't right. This is misrepresented when I'm writing it. And they're like, well, you have to sign it and we have to put it in your file because it's going in your, you know. She wanted you to resign. Permanent right? file. She we'll, we'll, f- we'll get there. Okay. Uh, per- then permanent file. And I was like, I was like, I, you know, I, you know, first I was like, well, why don't you give me the weekend to read it? You know, you guys just kind of push this on me and like, well, right at the end of the day. Um, and made me read in front of you and I mean, think about it. And they're like, no, we need you to sign it. So I wrote on there, um, you know, I'm signing it to acknowledge that I received it, but I, you know, take issue with the facts and um, some of the analysis in there because there was clear misrepresentations or some things that just straight up didn't happen. Um, and so uh, 
you know, one of the things I asked right there was like, who, you said that I, you know, I did this unethical thing about talking to the witness. Like, do you, you understand? And so I went and walked through, you know, what a witness is, what the difference between hearsay and that this would never go to court. And that there's no, this has nothing to do with any of the stuff that you're saying right now. Um, and she was just like, and so I was like, if you have, you know, authority, you're saying you talk to these state experts, who are the state experts? And she was like, you know, her whole body like kind of shugged him. She's like, uh, I, let me, you know, I'll have to look at my email. I knew it was a lie right there. I was like, okay. Because she couldn't name Yeah. Couldn't and then, you know, it. now she names her brother, basically, you know, Paul Scarra. She names him. How would you not remember his name, that for one? But uh, like, one, I mean, I knew it was BS because you could read any of the books and they'll tell you the answer. Yeah, I believe her counter to that was that she felt flustered and yeah. that you were slightly aggressive or something and, I, and asking who who who, yeah, who was well, your witness. So in any event, uh, I signed the thing, left. The, Monday, the next Monday morning, because uh, she said she was going to give me the information, I just sent her an email. Um, and I, I was like, hey, if I'm wrong about this, then I would like to you know talk to these guys that you're saying are the experts. And then an hour later, she called me in her office and asked me to resign. And so it was calling her out is, you know, ultimately what the reason. Not, not owning up to the mistakes she felt you made and then well, pushing yeah, back. Not owning up to what, if she felt that I was a mistake, uh, but then calling her out. Make, if that was a mistake, right, then show me the authority. Show me the law. Show, tell me who your experts are so I can talk to them and we can. And so the future, I understand, uh, even though I knew what the law was, and this isn't close, but if you're saying that, then give me the information. And the questioning of her is ultimately why she was asked for my resignation and on principle I said, I'm not giving to you. And then she said, well, you're dismissed immediately. And I said, okay. I said, I, you know, that's a bad decision. But all right. I, you know, at that point, hadn't seen the waste of resources and the stuff like prosecuting cases and not being decisive dragging things along all of that stuff had you know having five murder cases and then being the vertical prosecutor for felony cannabis environmental crime arson drug labs doing all the asset forfeiture all of those things you know it, they broke my job into three or four people plus having five homicides and then i'm covering every day in court covering you know low level felonies for a prelim and so i'm just sitting in court you know dealing with that stuff when i should be dealing with my actual workload and working on homicides that need a lot of help. And so I was all ready to get out of there. Um, but, uh, and then had some other job offers. And so it was, you know, at that point I was like ready to let go, you know, and my plan had already been, you know, um, to run against her, not a hundred percent. At that point, um, I was planning on running against her and I think I decided, you know, it was actually DA investigators that I went up to dinner with and they made custom shirts that said AK for DA on them. And so like their own office, like we need leadership here. We need someone that we can trust to build an office. And, you know, that was kind of like the last thing I was like, all right, I'm in, I'm going to go against her. You know, she's a two-time incumbent, but whatever. And then, you know, a month later, she says she's not going for it. And she's going to, you know, try to appoint Stacy to it, essentially. Had you had any prior tension with with Maggie? I know you mentioned the them giving you 
helpful advice that turned out not to be helpful. But did you come into any any yeah. friction with her prior to that, or do you, was this yeah. a pretty spur of the moment thing with this case? Yeah. We got along uh, overall, I think, well. You know, um, I felt like, you know, for the cases that I wasn't the vertical prosecutor, the primary prosecutor, so I had, you know, my kind of my own, you know, I did the charging all the way to post sentencing. Most cases, she does the charging. And for general felonies, she does the charging, and then she writes a what the resolution of the offer is going to be to resolve it um, for the for the majority of the cases. So you know the process is like we go down there and try to negotiate a case. We don't really have any authority to negotiate. We're like, well, this is what Maggie says, and then you know they give you you know some additional information or whatever, and then you have to go relay it. You know, you're basically <laughs> I'm like, well, I'm just talk, call Maggie, relay it, and then you feel like you're the defense attorney up there, and in ninety percent of the time, it's just like no. And I mean, here's a really good example of that. That probably happened a year or two before I was fired. I had this case, a uh, guy set up someone's backpack on fire um, at the bus stop. While he was wearing it? No. Okay. It was just like on the side. Just contextually. I yeah. Ask. No, that's a smart question. That was a smart question. Um, and he had, what was it? He had also set a tampon on fire next to St. Bernard's School. Um, and put it in a bush. And then there was one other case. It was another kind of, oh, he threatened another person to throw a brick at an ATM machine. You know, real high quality heist here. The guy very clearly had physical manifestations of Down syndrome. He was developmentally delayed. Like there's, you know, you talk to him, no, no question. You look at him, you can tell. It was pretty apparent. Yeah, it was apparent. And so from the start, I'm like, well, you know, I bring the case, I tell Maggie, like, you know, saw this guy in court, you know, I watched the body-worn cameras and the way that he talks to and how scared he is and all these things. I think he's, you know, just, uh, I don't think it's someone that we want to prosecute or try to send to prison. Um, you know, I think we could probably find some sort of diversion here early. He was also a um, regional client, so he has a caretaker, a social worker. And so I'm like, you know, why don't we just, you know, try to, you know, do some sort of diversion early? And I got big red pencil issues on the thing, no to that. Um, we are going to prosecute this guy for a strike arson as well as vandalism and attempted theft. And then this other minor. Maggie arson. decided this. Yeah. And so I was like, all right, you know, that's what the boss says, right? So it takes four times to get this thing to prelim, just out of court space. So that means four times we bring three law enforcement officers. I think it was actually four with the other case. Four law enforcement officers wait all morning for a courtroom, don't get a courtroom, they leave taxpayers' money officers off the street. Fourth time we finally get it to a hearing. He's held answer. I mean, there's no question. It was on surveillance video. It's not an evidentiary question on those things. Um, and then another two months go by and we're at trial assignment. The last you know, step before trial. And she tells me, well, I was down there. I was like, she's like, I don't know if the jury's gonna like this. And I was just like, that's what I've been trying to tell you. Yeah. And then, you know, she's trying to just 
ditch it off for like a misdemeanor conviction for all of this stuff. Just a misdemeanor conviction with no consequences. There's no community service. There's no jail. It's just like paper conviction, which is, you know, what do give this guy that's going to have a tough time getting a job? He's developmentally delayed. Now we're going to just, you know, have a conviction to have a conviction. Okay. Um, and this is after getting it all the way to that. Yeah. Makes that no sense. So that's stage. what she, she takes, you know, takes it over at trial assignment. And that's what she does. And she asked me, or like before she does that, she, you know, she was talking to me about the resolution really quick. And she's like, yeah, I, you know, I just don't think the jury's going to like that. And I was like, that, you know, I literally went, you know why we're here? And I picked up the file and I turned to the page with her big red pencil and I said, I said this from the start. I don't, I mean, do what you got to do. And, you know, is, do you think that's because she just never looked at the actual case or? I don't know, but we wasted a ton of resources again, by not being decisive, and we should have never, ever been in that position. Ever. Yeah, that's... I don't know. That's a problem. <laughs> yeah. That's... And that's why I'm running for DA, so we don't waste resources. We be decisive. We be the gatekeeper. We, you know, there's going to be people, people that don't like our decisions, but, you know, we'll stand by them and explain why we made those decisions. There's some, some of them would be very hard. A lot of them are going to be hard decisions. But that's the job of being a DA. I, I found where, tying back to the uh, Chris Champagne, and this is a direct quote from Maggie Fleming in regard to that case, and it goes, quote, The issue with inexperienced prosecutors, and I include Kamada in that category, is that if we had tried that case and the jurors did not find our start witness to be compelling, and they hung it would be much harder for us to negotiate a resolution and that star witness in that being um, champagne. That's where, that's where I pulled that from. But these are like, these are broad statements coming from Stacy and from Fleming. Yeah. Stacy, not in regards to that case, but Stacy well, in general of, yeah. they seem to be attacking your, your competence yeah. just in general. Which, which makes no sense. Again, I'm the person doing these complicated murders. Who's the person that assigned me? Why would you assign an incompetent person to handle all this complicated stuff? Yeah, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, so it makes zero sense. And then the fact that this whole thing there now, you know, between Stacy calling me unethical over and over, over something that she either doesn't understand the law, like Maggie, or she's just straight lying. And either way, it's not good. Yeah, neither of those are comfortable answers. <laughs> no. That's not what you want so to hear. I'm like, dude, like... And people that are, you know, some people are like kind of falling for it or whatever. And I'm just, um, it's frustrating for sure. Well, Lost Coast, and I don't have a problem with Lost Coast, but I've been struggling in the sense that a lot of the articles that I've read in preparation for this podcast and previous podcasts, they don't seem to really paint that objective of a light. No. It seems, um, I don't want to say targeted, but it doesn't no. seem favorable. You know, and what my, you know, campaign manager maybe had pointed out um, uh, to them was like, you know, if, if you're going to like have these stories that kind of seem like hit jobs on Adrian, um, maybe you should post that uh, your, the owner's wife is an owner or supporting Stacey Eads. Um, they have, they do have a lot of. And ads for Stacey Eads on their side. I will give them and that. yeah, and the fact that Stacey has spent tens of thousands of dollars on ads on their website. Um, and the fact that, you know, Maggie and the owner's wife are uh, 
friendly. I mean, all does that those frustrate things, you? Because it seems like your campaign has been targeted for this secretive money action. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah, it it is it is frustrating, especially you know, dark money. Um, you know, when there's a pack paying for all kinds of stuff for her and other candidates, and uh, that one's a general pack, is my understanding of it. Um, and so they can just purchase stuff or, you know, um, whomever, but, and that, that's just my understanding. Of that. I, I don't, you know, that's from talking with some of the folks involved with that, I, but aside from, you know, then, and I, we don't really know who those people are. Um, I don't know who those people are. And then, you know, to be, uh, you know, cast this shadow on me of unethical and, uh, you know, secret of stuff and it's like no dude, this is like this is my buddy he's right here he, he, he might not be good at paperwork or whatever but here he is and that's what i told last cause i gave him his phone number you know here's the dude that's paying for it it's running that independent expenditure and it's my buddy since sixth grade did they follow up they, they called him yeah and then I, they, they wrote something last night that again seemed they're like here's adrian's board in the wetlands <laughs> again Okay, I think that more offensive is probably, uh, you know, not having something that's already there and having my face on it. What I'd say is probably more offensive is going into uh, a defendant's yard, wetlands next to the bay, and erecting a Stacey Eads sign. That actually has some environmental impact, probably not that much. But more worrying, worrying about that is the fact that they're currently prosecuting the person that owns that property. And... No Wait, one's leave that, about leave that. that out for me again because, yeah, I haven't so, heard that anywhere. one person that I prosecuted while I was in the office was Ray Christie. Ray Christie had 250 dead cows on his property. Um, we charged him with a slew of misdemeanors and I think four or five felonies. After a long trial, um, they hung on the felonies. 11 people for guilty, one not guilty, the person that just wouldn't follow the law. And then I convicted him of 25 misdemeanors um, for abandoning, dumping cow carcasses in the waterways of the state, which is along his properties. There's just dead cows everywhere. All just 250 is a lot of dead cows. Oh, there's more than that. There was, it's, there was piles of dead cows. It was disgusting. Um, anyway, he's got pretty prime property. Um, on the actual ranch that he has, there's two signs, Stacey Eads signs. Then I think like another four of his properties had erected Stacey Eads signs on them. And so this is a person that you're currently prosecuting and is also pending sentencing and you're erecting signs on there. I think that that's a, a, a point where you're along the way, not, and this is what I saw like all the time. And this is what happened with, you know, the issue of me being terminated and then them turning it around to just false story is that they think there's like raw power can kind of get them past things. Like no well, one's to gonna be fair, that's worked for most of human history. Yeah, but like then, you know, finally there's someone pointing it out. And they don't like that. Yeah, that seems like that would be a bit of a conflict of interest. Yeah. Especially where you're currently prosecuting him. That seems like a Yeah. Seems like a problem. And one of those signs is in a wetland? Uh yeah, uh, at least two of the ones that I saw, yeah. And they had been erected. But it's like a wetland, but it's also a ranch land. I mean there's there's streams that are connected uh, hydrologically they're sleuths that go into humble but these are billboards 
They're yeah, they're like you know the big signs. So they have three posts. Um, they're not like billboard billboards, okay. but you're but they're the erecting. They're, yeah, they're large signs with three posts. You know that kind of thing. Uh, so you know they are erecting something on, on there, but not you know having a repaint of uh, a billboard that's already existing. So I think so again that just in itself. But I think the bigger problem there, of course, is the conflict interest. But so it's you know it's interesting. Uh, you know, then they hire this other political consultant that like harasses uh, my when's harassing my family at the parade, um, who turned two charity events, try to turn them into Stacey Eads uh, campaign events. One charity is Bander. Uh, this is another one of Stacey's surrogates, Bander, and uh, they gave all the money back that the Eads campaign donated to the charity. Gave it back and said, "We don't want it. Don't use any of our pictures." in any of your campaign stuff. And sure enough, they continue to do that. I mean, talking about, so it's it's hard that, you know, the questions about ethics are coming on me when they're doing, with their raw power, using the DA's office for one, it's illegal to use it as a campaign tool for Stacey, but that's what they've done from the start. Uh, you know, they literally brought a number of prosecutors into the office with Stacy sitting there and Maggie sitting there, two of them close the door behind, prosecutor sits down and they go, you're supporting Stacy, right? In office, during hours. On the clock. On the clock in a position where you can fire someone. You have a power position over them. So the, all the stuff that they, you know, try to sling at me, it's like, it's frustrating because, you know, I'm just this entire time my campaign team is like, well, we got to fire back. We got to send these press releases. We got to do this. We got to do that. And I'm like, let's just try to stay above it. What we're doing is working. We're talking to people. They're, they know we need change. We've won all the endorsements. Let's just keep going. I think in engaging with them is kind of what they want. They want to get us off track. They want to bait us into you know, billboard shenanigans. They want they don't want to talk to about the increase in violent crime over Maggie's tenure. Thirty percent increase between twenty fourteen and twenty twenty. Thirty percent in violent crime. Mendocino went down twenty eight percent that time. Yeah, it seems like a lot of people have mixed feelings about Maggie in particular. <clears throat> I you know, um we need someone in that office that's going to show leadership and that's something that i don't think either stacy or maggie have i don't think i think that they have skills at certain things but they're not leaders right that's a big statement i was just giving that some air to breathe no i mean it, i mean if <laughs> i guess you have to the culture of like not speaking out about anything um, that happens in the office, too. And, and you can see that even in the memo that she, uh, in my response. There was, at the last page of it, she writes, I saw in a file that you said you were disappointed that you're no longer going to be the environmental prosecutor and we need to uh, keep a, you know, a constant face. Or I can't remember the term that she used, but basically that we shouldn't be talking about internal stuff we should all be projecting a united a front. united front type of thing right okay and it was because the prosecutor uh or the guy had we'd been working on a case together 
for a while and we were getting a trial and uh, the case was taken away from me during this part and I emailed him, you know, I'm no longer the environmental prosecutor. I, I'm trying to hang on to this one case because we've put so many hours into it, but I think it might get reassigned and he emailed me back. Well, you know, either way, I just want you to know and don't let you go, let this go to your head that you're the best prosecutor that I've ever worked with, a, a U.S. attorney or, you know, local. And, you know, I just was like, thank you and try not to let it go in my head. Um, and, you know, just to kind of show like what's, you know, happening, I put that email in the file. I put most emails in the file. And then, you know, Maggie read that and was like, basically, why are you telling people that you're disappointed that you're not doing this job anymore? I mean, come on. What is your stance on transparency in the office? Because it seems like that was a recurring theme in those public forums you guys did. Yeah. I So I think, you know, the one thing that's really sort of blatant is their trials. Like in the fall, they lost seven trials in a row. Four, three were straight up not guilties. Another one was uh, dismissed for actual Brady violations. Yeah, right. Um, And then the other ones, uh, they went to trial, but the offer that they made to the defense, they didn't beat the offer. So what I mean by that is they say it was a murder case. They offered murder two. And then the defense came back and said, well, it's more of a manslaughter case. And they're like, nope, we're going to try it. And then they ended up with involuntary manslaughter. So way below the bar. Yeah. So that's a loss too. Even though they chalk it up as a win. Unless, of course, I'm doing it. And then they would chalk that up as a And loss. they don't share that information with the public. And currently. then, yeah, I guess that's going back to the point is they, if they win a trial, they're like, we won. You know, look at us. And then if someone is found not guilty, there's just crickets. And I think that, um, you know, the defendant has been accused of this thing in the court of public opinion by having his or her face you know, during the arrest and if there was news following it to some extent, you know, there's a lot of cases that, you know, they only follow for so long. Um, you know, some of the bigger trials will get followed, but this wasn't, you know, some of these weren't them and they just, this person, you know, has been known to commit this crime and then he was found not guilty and they're not saying anything about it. It's just, so I think under my administration, um, we will release the results of every trial. Win or lose. Win or lose. Because that's, I think, just fundamental as a public servant. That's, you know, you should be telling your employer, people of the state of California, that you represent, we lost this trial. Why would you hide that? Would a private business ever allow someone that, you know, had 20, uh, that lost seven big accounts at, you know, some ad firm or something and just went, you know, boss walks by and and then they get one account and they're like, we got an account, but we just lost seven. And not let them know that person would be fired immediately. So, I to me, um, hiding that, not being upfront with the public, is a problem, and that's uh, will change immediately. Um, I using the interns. I do hope to have um, a robust system where we're not talking about uh, anything about the case other than the status, so people can actually just go online and see the status of a case, like if it's pending trial or it's at the prelim, or where it's at, um, but not, you know, us remarking on the case or anything like that, but just so people can have information. Track where it's going. Yeah. Seems pretty basic to me. I had Michael Acosta on, I believe, earlier this week, and he brought up 
the issue of a lack of transparency with the police department in re in regards to like private informants and criminals that they've flipped. Yeah. Uh, what is your stance on that? Do you have any stance on that? I, I do. I mean, um, I think he's very focused on a, a narrow thing because, you know, they use informants to come at him, right? Yes, so his all, case his case is definitely yeah. a primary factor in yeah. in his, his so, targets right now. Um, ultimately, uh, Maggie decides who is eligible to be an informant. And, you know, generally the things that you're looking at is their record. Like, has that been a really bad record? Um, and then the value of the information and the credibility of the information that you're getting. And also if they did have a prior track record. Um, and so there's there's factors that go into it. Generally, I think that there should be um, a very clear established contract. Um, there are some times where they, you know, they go, you know, written informants or whatever. Um, but, you know, being the person advising on DTF, you know, as a prosecutor, I never want to know who the informants are um, generally. But uh, my goal is to just... Again, this ties back into you want to keep informants secret, right? And that's what, you know, in this case where because you're going to get a search warrant to go search a house. And there's an evidence code, 1040-1042, that allows for that. So that's, you know, akin to the situation where we're talking to, a, you know, a person that they claim is an informant or a witness, which is neither of those things. But, again, we're just getting information to get a search warrant. But so that's just like to show you how that works. But um, in any event, uh, there are value. Uh, you know, it's part of sometimes it's not the glorious part of the job. But sometimes, you know, if you want to bring down a murder case and you have someone that's charged with drug case. And, you know, they did that in the Jason Warren case. Uh, there was a guy that uh, had a grow bunch of bunch of asset forfeiture hundreds of thousand dollars a few cars all of these things he wasn't even a witness into the case and to the primary event in that murder he was someone that had been hit by a car uh about i think it was eight years earlier by the same uh defendant so that comes into evidence to show um you like using the same sort of weapon not for the guy's character but to show that he was the person that committed the crime uh, because they use a weapon in the same manner, essentially. Um, to get that guy to testify, who is, you know, uh, probably really not that necessary with the evidence they had, but nevertheless, uh, they gave him all the money back, all his cars, dropped all the felony charges against him. So it's it's a case-by-case -case basis. Um you know, and then there's like, you know, the working informants for the drug task force that. I'm know, sorry, could you just pull that oh, just a little bit? Closer? And then there's the working informants for the drug task force that, you know, uh, usually are low level dealers or users that just uh, give information on uh, people that are bigger. And so. Obviously, anonymity is important in regards to, yeah. to names so that you can't identify these people. But I think there could be some or an argument could be made that transparency should be involved in how many the county currently holds what they're being paid or if what their charges are being diminished to i think that could be valuable yeah and you need to put that information in the search warrant if you're saying i have a confidential informant um not 
how many confidential informants. I, I agree with that. I mean, say how many there are without naming them. That doesn't seem to be a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, when you're talking about the confidential informant, um, he usually says that the confidential informant is doing this for, you know, consideration in pending charges or they're being paid is usually the two that you see for. But not what those charges are being diminished to or what that compensation no. looks like. No. Okay. Um, what a defense attorney can do if they have some information or they can read between the lines or maybe there's something in the statement of probable cause, they can uh, file a motion for uh, revealing the criminal informant. Um, and that would be the full identity. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, if there's a mistake made along the road, then essentially it leaves the DA with an option of, you know, potentially having to expose that person, potentially putting them at harm um, or dismissing the case. Um, yeah, if, I don't think exposing them is good. You don't want to put no. them in harm's way. I think the transparency or desire for transparency comes from the fact that, again, you have those cases where pressure is put on those informants right. in in a less than upstanding way. And so transparency surrounding that would be beneficial for the public, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, again, just um, knowing the names, I think, is something that would be impossible. Um, you know, they're the other way, and I think this is the preferable way to do it, um, it doesn't give information to the public, but potentially gives enough information to the defense attorney to dig deeper and file a motion to, again, reveal the criminal informant. Um, there's this thing called a um, Hobbs seal. It comes from a case, um, people v. Hobbs, and it allows, like for the search warrant, which is a public document, it allows for sensitive information that could reveal an individual uh, informant if it could reveal who they are and that there's a chance that that person could be harmed because of becoming revealed, you can put it in a sealed document that the judge reads, but then seals that document. And it's part of the search warrant. It's part of the probable cause narrative of how they get to where they're going. But it seals it off. Um, and in there, you can say who the person is and put their record if you want. You don't necessarily have to do that as a police officer. You could still refer to them as uh, a criminal informant, but when you do that in a hobstill, you're usually giving up some information uh, that would likely reveal who that person is. Like, you know, sometimes it's the neighbor, you know, that observes people coming back and forth. Or, But the only but, one getting that is the judge. Right. Okay. And so I think that's, you know, I think that, fi- that strikes the balance that we need. I think it works. Okay. Well, do you have, I don't know how much time you have. We've done two hours. So, I I, yeah, I know. <laughs> um, do you have anything else you want to just, quickly throw out there i mean we covered we covered a decent amount here no i mean um i like i said i'm trying to talk about ideas i'm trying to talk about change i think that there is a path to modernize our da's office and you know the reason that i'm putting myself out there in a time when politics is divided and people the discourse is disgusting you know a lot of that's people, an understatement <laughs> a lot of people don't want to get involved and a lot of good people don't want to get involved because you know you see what happens you know, you're accused of stuff you didn't do. You're accused of, uh, you know, being fired for not disclosing evidence in a homicide, which is completely just not even remotely true. You know, and so it, it, it going in through the process, I knew that I was going to have to face certain 
um, attacks and stuff like that. Disappointed um, in the DA's office using itself as a campaign weapon. I'm disappointed in Stacey. Um, disappointed in Maggie I, in a lot of ways. I think uh, what they're showing is being desperate and kind of pathetic. Um, and, you know, the whole reason I'm doing this is because uh, this is where I grew up, you know, and I want it to be safe. And I want to make this community stronger and better so we can have more uh, economic opportunities here. And it's hard to bring in economic opportunities when, you know, you look around and you look at the numbers and there's just so much crime. And so w what we're doing doesn't work. We know that. And it's time to do something different. And that's what I'm proposing. And so I, you know, I think that's what this comes down to. It doesn't come down to, you know, which one of my friends bought a billboard. It comes down to the fact that I'm trying to bring change and they're trying to keep things status quo the way things always are. And it doesn't work. And that's, you know, straight up, that's what happens. And so I'm hoping with my, you know, uh, plan and putting the right people in the positions and reorganizing, we can build what we need to build here um, and become a, you know, a leading respectful DA's office. Okay. And where can people find you, find your campaign? Um, AK4DA.com um, has a ton of information on it, including all of our endorsements. You know, like I said before, Democratic Party, Progressive Democratic Party, Iraq Tribe, Labor Council, um, ASME. Um, that's all of the uh, administrative workers in uh, the County of Humboldt. Um, you know, we're, we have a lot of support. Um, a lot of people from the medical field. Um, again, more law enforcement support. One of the interesting things about law enforcement support, one, we have just more people endorsing than Stacey Eads, but it's like almost a flip reverse. So I think, I, you know, I'm not getting the numbers exactly right, but say there's 30 people um, that are uh, law enforcement officers that are endorsing me. 28 of those 30 are active, and there's captains, lieutenants, sergeants and patrol officers across the board and say she has 25 uh 23 of those people are retired so it really is the old way versus the this new, new way and i think we're time it's time for the new way because the old way doesn't work i do just have to ask this last question because i was just reminded by you saying that and then we can wrap it up yeah are you at all worried because it does sound like you were you're close with these officers and that you have built a rapport with them mm -hmm. in the department. Are you worried that that would be, that that could compromise any trial that comes your way in regards to an officer involved no. in something? No, I think the officers that support me, they know, like I told you before, I'll straight up tell them, Hey, you messed up here and let's make this better. So it doesn't happen. They know that if they intentionally do something wrong, you know, that I, you know, if it's a crime, I'll file charges against them. They are tend to be the officers that uh, don't like it when they see uh, people get special deals from the DA's office because it, to the public, affects their credibility. It's harder for them to make cases when police officers can't be trusted. And these are the guys you can trust. Like These are the people that are working really hard to do their job the right way. And when they go out there and people have had bad experiences with cops or bad experience with the DA's office and they won't talk to them because they don't trust them, 
it makes it impossible to make cases, right? That's how you make cases is talking to people. So, um, but again, if one, I think every single one of those people knows if they did something wrong, I'll be the first person to tell them. They'd be held accountable. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and they all know that. Okay, well, Adrian, thank you. Thanks for taking yeah. the time, man. I really enjoyed talking with you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Good talking with you. Thanks, guys. Adrian Kamada. Right.